Ahmad, a very good morning to you. We're live from London and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, my panellists, Charles Hecker here in London and Demita Pressel will be in Zurich to talk about the days and the week's big stories. Charles, what have you spotted? Well, I've recently come back from 10 days in the United States and I've picked up a fairly heavy political bug while I was there and I'm following some stories about what's happening in the wake of the Trump indictment surrounding January 6th. Thank you very much indeed. We'll also be heading to Bangkok. Sawadee Ka from Bangkok. This is Gwen Robinson for Monocle and I'll be updating you later on some extraordinary political developments in the land of smiles. Plus, Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will join me on the line from Lisbon. It's the 6th of August 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And the warmest of welcomes to you if you have just switched on your radio. This is Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. And today's panellists are, well, we're going to try a bit of a balancing act. We've got Charles Hecker here in the studio in London, senior partner at Control Risks, regular voice around the table. Hello, Charles. Good morning, Emma. And from the Zurich studio, we have a new and fresh voice to join us on Monocle on Sunday, Demita Pressel, who's a journalist and moderator at the Neue Zürcher Zeitung. A very good morning to you, Demita. How is Zurich looking this morning? Good morning. Um, not very sunny, to be honest, but beautiful as always. Beautiful as always, but um, I've been given a sneak peek of the fact that it's absolutely tipping down over there. Is that right? It is, unfortunately, okay. yeah. Well, that's fine. It's cold here in London. I, I ended up being so... I, for whatever reason, I was outside at three o'clock in the morning and it was. it felt like eight degrees and it was horrible. Charles Hecker, are we in... Are we in February here? It is actually colder outside than it is in the Monocle studios, which are known for being refrigerator-like in their temperature. Um, It is definitely not August when you're out on the streets here. No, it's miserable. Absolutely miserable. So let's enjoy a major blast of Mediterranean, well, not Mediterranean, Atlantic sun. Uh, Let's head to Lisbon to join our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, who's, who's basking in what? Is it 41 degrees, Tyler? Good morning. Good morning, Bum GM. Not 41 degrees just yet, but uh, this is what the IPMA, uh, the uh, the Portuguese Meteorological uh, Agency, is, is promising for the day. Red alert, uh, temperatures uh, 41 plus, particularly for, for Lisbon uh, and, of course, inland uh, as well. They're, they're really sort of marking this as a serious crisis. And it's interesting if you pick up some of the papers, uh, Expresso, which is uh, one of the the weeklies of record uh, here, they have done a very timely piece. I guess they've, they've, it's one of those stories that editors keep in the drawer for events like this, and it is a piece about uh, really sort of conjuring up a vision of Portugal 2050 uh, and, and everything that might, we might have been thinking during the summer of 2023 and, of course, uh, what uh, might become of this country uh, come, come 2050. Everybody is now saying this, and it's one of those dreadful preoccupations, particularly this summer, isn't it? That we all want, we go on holiday to forget our cares and to, you know, to sort of temporarily pause any future worries that we may have. But as soon as you turn on the tarmac, you know, land on the tarmac, you're you're bombarded now with people saying this is actually a really, really big problem. In, indeed, and uh, there's that, and then there, there of course is the other side, which is. Uh, yeah, the complaining that happens in the other part of Europe, where you could say only two weeks ago people were you know, upset about you know crazy temperatures during the day, violent thunderstorms at night. Uh, this is all part of our time. And then, as you're saying, you step out onto the streets of London, 
And then people are moaning um, that it's also potentially eight degrees um, in the middle of what is supposed to be a high summer. So you know, how, how quickly uh, we, we can sometimes forget about uh, the state of our climate when we're having to live it uh, in real time. I mean, and that's whether the mercury is up or down. Okay, and Demeter, let's bring you in on this one because you're in Zurich, which seems to have a reasonable balance because you're neither very super cold nor super hot. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm I'm currently in Zurich, but I'm also from Austria, and um, we're currently seeing an Austrian Carinthia actually um, flooding, um, pretty pretty bad flooding that's affecting um, uh, quite a large area, and um, you know, it's it's like Charles said, it's it's hard to forget about at this point. It's uh, not much fun. This is not how we were supposed to be beginning this programme. This programme was excitement, travel, fun, summer, and everything seems to be vaguely apocalyptic. Uh, protecting us from the apocalypse, though, uh, Tyler, in Lisbon, is a he- is a healthy gathering of Catholics. Indeed. I can't see any. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure I, I can see some, but I can't see the the one million plus uh, who are gathered uh, quite beyond the city centre this morning. This is, uh, it's, they, they call it, of course, it's World Youth Day, W-Y-D, but in fact, it's, it's an entire week. Uh, and uh, Pope Francis is here this morning. I, I believe right now he has already uh, stepped onto the rather uh, large concert stage uh, and set up uh, to, and, and to, of course, uh, give his blessings to lead a mass for one million plus pilgrims. This is the amazing thing, though. This is... This is a, a youth event. It is the biggest jamboree of its type that, uh, that the Catholic Church runs. Of course, this being a very Catholic country as well, uh, Portugal is absolutely delighted to, to be hosting this. I mean, if you open any of the newspapers, you would think that they've been written by um, yeah, a central propaganda machine, which is a joint venture between the, the Portuguese government and the Catholic Church, uh, that this is it's crazy, the numbers, but they, they talk about being crazy in a very positive way. But I, I was sort of left scratching my head thinking, how remarkable as well that you can get, you know, a, a million plus of the faithful who are in their you know, early to late teens, early 20s from all over the world who, who want to, to gather um, and, and talk about faith, be part of a community. It is something quite remarkable at this time when we're so frequently down on modern news. It's incredible, actually. Um, I have I have personal experience of World Youth Day in 1997 because I was living in Paris at the time, and Pope John Paul decided to gather the again. It was one million. Um, they did the they did it at I think they did it at the Longchamp Racecourse, and um, what you got in Paris was and, and cities clear Paris in particular in August clears itself out, and so we were expecting a reasonably quiet city, but then suddenly. Everywhere you looked, there were these huddled groups of very clean cut and rather sort of, I don't know, young people with lots of backpacks. That's what I can remember. But there was this burgeoning sense of sort of hormone, because if you get a million young Catholics into one place, it's it's going to sort of like turn things up a bit. Have you seen, have you had any experience of this yet, Tyler? Well, I touched down from Zurich last night uh, at about 11.30, the, the street. Were, were packed, in, of course, in a in a way quite sort of buttoned up and and orderly. Uh, but there were there were certainly plenty of youth gathered uh, out on the street, filling up the kiosks, uh, having a vino verde, having a beer. And, and as you said, I mean, let's you know, I wonder if you sort of go through all of the positioning documents that the Vatican might have created, of course, uh, for uh, World Youth Day. I mean, it is a bit of a, a global hookup event as well. Let's, let's face it. <laughs> And, and and it is it is quite interesting because the, the you know the Pope has been talking about 
this is a time about, you know, opening the doors, throwing open the doors, etc. Uh, you know, everybody is welcome. And so you think, well, okay, yeah, are you welcome to sort of come into my dorm room, um, come into my tent? Uh, <laughs> you could go on with this one. <laughs> but it, that was the overall expression. Everything just started to kind of like bubble under the surface. Uh, Demeter, from, from Austria, you, you come from a country which sort of wears its Catholicism very, very loudly. Yeah, I mean, you know... N- not as loudly as not probably one of them, you know, not not compared to some other countries still. But yes, there's still a there's still a heavy, tangible Catholic influence in Austria. Um, one of the things that people, expats or or people who are not from Austria who move there, one of the first things they get annoyed by is, you know, um, landing or arriving in Vienna only to find that on Sundays everything is closed. And I feel like, um, you know, Austria and Switzerland and a handful of other countries are the few countries worldwide where that is still the case. Um, personally, you know, as, as somebody who grew up there, I, I, you know, we went to mass for Christmas and Easter and sort of the, as you do, we weren't, I wasn't raised very Catholic in that sense, but it's part of the culture. So it's hard to um, escape on, on some days, I would say, like there's, it's just something that you do. And um, I, I kind of, I was smiling at the description because I never experienced gatherings of Catholics as a, as a hookup. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for someone like I'm, I'm very atheist, but, but even back then, it just seemed to me that everything is so structured. You have to know when you get up, you have to know when you sit down, you have to know exactly when you say amen and when you say what and what part of the prayer comes when. And I was always so confused because, you know, for me, it was a, like wedding and, and like wedding Christmas and Easter kind of thing. So I was always looking at everyone else in church for cues. Like, do I stand up now? Do I sit down? What do I do? <laughs> Tyler, will you be following? Are you heading, Tyler, to, to this gathering today? Or are you running in the opposite direction? Oh, such a good question, Emma Nelson. First, I just I just want to jump in on on on, on the topic of of Catholicism and retail being shut down on a Sunday, particularly in Switzerland uh, and uh, and and Austria and and Germany as well. We might add now, of course, uh, you know certainly Zurich is uh, is, is not a, a Catholic city. They'll have you know there's there's plenty of them, uh, but uh, I do I do think I do take issue with it because, and I will say this as a Catholic as well. Um, that uh, I'm not uh, defending the church by any stretch, but if I can say that there are some you know, staunchly Catholic countries like Portugal, I'm looking from my balcony across to the big El Corte Inglés department store, which is always open on a Sunday. <laughs> so I think there, there, is, there is something about the, the, well, certainly some very Catholic nations where actually we're going to trade any day of the week. I mean, we've seen the transformation of Italy, Spain as well, uh, France a little bit, uh, maybe, maybe not to the same extent, but it's certainly you know, that Paris, the doors are all flung open for retail on a Sunday as well. And certainly, I think, you know, those who do not want to stand in the 41-degree heat uh, this morning, I think will probably be making their way to the air-conditioned comfort of El Corte Inglés or some other shopping mall. But as for me, I'm heading <laughs> south, Emma. <laughs> I'm heading the opposite direction of the pilgrims, um, pilgrimage of another kind. The Je ne sais quoi group, very, very uh, interesting hospitality enterprise uh, out of Lisbon. They run uh, a wonderful restaurant. They've got a fantastic club. They're opening a new hotel. And they're also quite a force down in Comporta. Of course, one of the uh, the destinations uh, on, on one of the sunnier coasts of, of Europe. They're, they've opened their new beach club, uh, which opened yesterday. And, of course, my job as an editorial director, I have to go and see these things. So I am heading down there now. I will send you a full photographic 
uh, report a little bit later today. How are you going to cope with this assignment, Tyler? What 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 awful person made you go there? I know it's, it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, that, that's also the good thing when you're the editorial director. You can also commission yourself to do these things. Uh, but I'm going to be, uh, yeah, it, it should be it should be an, an interesting day of uh, hopefully, yeah, caipirinhas, other things. It's going to be, I, I'm, it, it'll be a, a fascinating to watch because I've never done what I would say hardcore comporta in, in the summertime. So I'm fascinated to see, is it going to be lots of, of Brazilians, is it a lot of Americans, uh, who, who is there? Um, and, of course, this will likely, of course, land in our pages uh, very, very soon as well. Just a quick question, Tyler. The, the, the fact is, is that, on generally speaking, on hospitality in Europe at the moment, I've, I've been hopping around a couple of places this week, and I've noticed that it's super full, it's super busy, but I'm not sure whether a lot of the places that should be geared up for an enormous resurgence in, in tourism are actually up for it. And you sometimes got the, the impression that people were slightly on the make. Do you tell me that's not the case in Portugal? Well, I, I, I hope that's not the case, uh, but, and it, it's interesting, I've, I've been to Portugal quite a few times, I mean, since we've moved out of, uh, you know, the pandemic period, etc. The bounce back has been pretty rapid here, I, and, and I absolutely know what you, you're saying. Sometimes you go into a restaurant and you think it's just going to take some someone, you know, in, in the service team to have a bad tummy or something, and the whole thing is just going to completely fall apart. And, 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 and it's going to have to close down for the rest of the season because places are understaffed. But I was talking, um, and just heading back to Zurich for a moment, I was talking uh, to, to the head and the CEO of, of, of Switzerland Tourism, and he said he felt that we're coming to the end of that, that phase. At least he was speaking on behalf of Switzerland and also maybe talking to some other colleagues elsewhere in Europe as well that there has been, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a fresh, you know, um, influx of, of new talent uh, that, of course, places that want to be proper and serious are, are bringing, you know, are finding the staff or creating the conditions and, and, and creating the conditions where, the, as you said, it's not like, oh, they used to be open seven days a week. Now they're only open four days a week and, and there's no lunch service anymore. And you can go to the buffet or maybe down the corner to get your own croissant for breakfast. No, they're actually in the game of delivering proper hospitality. Um, so it was just interesting to, to hear that, yeah, people who want to be in their game, who see that they're, that they're, that they're serious you know, in this part of the industry are getting back on, on top of things. Now, probably for many, Emma, it's a little bit late in the summer season. We're, we're already approaching um, the middle of, middle of August. Um, but I think one of the fascinating things, though, and, and this, this goes back to maybe, I'm not sure we've touched on this a little bit, whether it's London or Zurich, is that, that sense of also who doesn't want to go away or who's not going away because they simply don't want to be fleeced because they, they, they know that their hotel used to be whatever. Even if it was a great place on the Met, it was maybe seven, eight hundred, nine hundred euros a night, and now it's 3,000 a night. Uh, and I certainly got the sense in Zurich, uh, and, and you'll probably notice this when you're there in a few weeks, a lot of people who I would have, who, you know, just simply would not have been at the cafe because they should have been on Antiparos or Lipari or they're somewhere in Croatia on a boat, actually stuck around in Zurich and said, actually, we're going to go away in October. We'd rather just, you know, use the city, be in Switzerland in this period, and we'll go later. But we're not going to be a bunch of mugs um, and, and be sort of upcharged at crazy rates.
Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Lisbon. I shall send you to your, um, your beach club now, but don't forget your rosary. That was our editorial director uh, joining us on the line from Portugal. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. It's Emma Nelson here, joined in the studio by Charles Hecker in London and in Zurich, Demita Pressel, journalist for the Neue Zeitung. Zeitung. Uh, Demita, just listening to that, Tyler, obviously being very big on getting hospitality right. Um from the point of view of where you're standing, from Zurich, clearly we're hearing is, is you know is working hard and people aren't wanting to run off and be be ripped off. But if we look at you know, neighbouring Austria, which is which was absolutely decimated by the by the pandemic, but then was given tremendous amounts of support by the government, how is how is Austrian tourism doing? Because it it it, it is such a you know a vital part of the economy. So I, I can't, I don't have any numbers now in, in mind um, about Austria as a whole, but I can tell you that Vienna, particularly where I'm from, is is, is very popular um, in summer and around Christmas, which is sort of when it's at its most beautiful and glorious. You have the Christmas markets and in summer it's just, um, you know, the Danube and it's just a very beautiful, beautiful city to hang out and discover. Um, and I think we bounced back actually, specifically Vienna, um, back in 2021 even if i remember correctly um from from sort of the the hit um after the pandemic so i from what i know vienna is now back to um to its regular numbers and and for the rest of austria obviously summer is not high season because high season is usually skiing season which is from you know around december to February, March, and that's when the rest of the the west of Austria sort of really um, brings in the big the big bucks from tourism. There's also the idea of good value, isn't it? The Batalo was talking about, you know, why should you spend you know six seven hundred dollars on something that two years ago, three years ago, was two hundred dollars. Charles, you've just come back from the United States, and is there is there a sense that uh, people have decided that they're going to give you value, or they're going to give you? Well, what are they going to give you? Well, do you remember the time, Emma, when people specifically from the UK used to travel to the United States because it was such a bargain? Um, and it was a, this was a function in part because of the relative strengths of the economies, and it was in part uh, a function of the exchange rate. Um, I remember back when the pound was 210 to the dollar, and people were putting empty suitcases onto their British Airways flights because they were going to come back with clothing and souvenirs and electronics and what have you. Um, those days are over. Um, it is astonishing how expensive the United States has become. It's expensive in restaurants. Um, it is expensive to walk in and have a coffee and a muffin in the morning. Um, clothing and, and, and just everything that you might want to do and enjoy on a summer holiday um, feels extortionate. Taxis are now almost unaffordable, really. I mean, and that used to be one of the great delights of New York is that you could jump into a yellow taxi, um, you know, much more lightly than you could into a black cab in London. Um, Those days are are resolutely over. And what was your experience in in the last couple of weeks? Where were you? And tell us, you know. I was mostly in the New York metropolitan area. And New York is extremely expensive. And then even when you get out, get out into the suburbs and you go down to the beach, I spent a couple of days on the Jersey Shore, um, which is in itself an entire phenomenon worthy of a separate radio broadcast. <laughs> um, but even outside the big city, um, there's really no sort of particular bargains to be had. Okay. What about you, Demeter? I mean, plans for the summer, are, they, are there sort of like long-term journeys to be had? Or, or, or are you doing what Tyler was suggesting, which is staying, staying in Zurich? Um, I just spent a week um, in Greece and Crete for for my birthday. Um, to be honest, I 
Um, I, I concur with what Tyler said, like looking around Zurich, this is my first full summer in Zurich and it actually makes no sense to leave the city in summer. It's so beautiful. Um, you have, you know, you're surrounded by nature and water and the weather tends to, well, not, not this week, but it tends to be perfect for summer, you know, warm enough that you can go in and have a swim, um, but not so warm that not, not, not Greece or Portugal or Italy. Um, so it actually makes a lot of sense to stay in Zurich or to stay in Switzerland um, for the summer in that sense. Okay, wonderful. Um, I shall be there in two weeks doing exactly that, combining a bit of work with a little bit of body. Um, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about America now, because uh, you were there. You went following Donald Trump while you were in America, were you, Charles Hacker? Donald, Donald Trump follows you when you're in America. <laughs> really? How much of a presence is he? Um, it really is ubiquitous. And, you know, you turn on the television and he's there. You turn on the radio and he's there. Um, you crack open a newspaper and you've got to flip several pages before you can get away from him. Um, whether you follow him or not, um, his presence is everywhere. And that is because we're approaching primary season. How have we got to this point, though? Because surely the Republicans probably would have liked a couple of other voices, but it's gone very, very much to being quite an open um, horse race, dare I make the analogy, um, to it all being about Trump. And one wonders whether these court cases and these criminal charges might have something to do with it, Charles. One of the reasons why he remains the subject of sort of 60-point front-page headlines, um, is that he keeps, he keeps getting hauled into court. And he's getting hauled into court on increasingly serious charges. And on my way to the airport from my return flight to London, um, he was indicted in connection with the January 6 riots and the attack on the Capitol. Um, and this is being pitched really as the most serious of all of the criminal charges that have been levied against him. And it was just wall-to-wall analysis. Um, and so you really can't get away from it. And, and the way that the story is being dissected is, is really um, in any number of ways. And, and that is that he remains the leading Republican presidential candidate, um, but at the same time seems to be the symptom of some sort of political collapse in the United States. And, and Dimitri, you've been sort of following this a little bit from, from the point from, from Zurich. Um, it's quite easy, isn't it, just to turn Donald Trump off if you don't need to. So that you, you can actually say, well, that is, dare I say it, a little bit of crazy town on the other side of the Atlantic. And um, you know, in the meantime, let's look at the nice body. Um, and it, but it, it is that thing that I wonder whether the world is underestimating Donald Trump. You know, I wish that were true. Um, and I think that short term, you probably can. But what worries me is... Um, is what if he wins the election? Because he could, you know, he's tied with Biden. He's, as, as we've said, he's the Republican front runner. He could win. And then what happens to Ukraine? Because it's not a given that he's just going to continue to give military aid to Ukraine um, the way that the Biden administration has. And then what happens to Ukraine is directly related to what happens to the security structure in Europe. And that is something that does worry me. Um, so I think you can turn him off here when you want to, but I think you'd be, you know, it, it wouldn't be advisable to do so because I think it's it's going to have consequences for Europe if he if he does win the election. Yeah, Demita makes an excellent point, and that is that while um, a lot of things can happen between now and the general election, which isn't for another two Novembers, um, we have to think about what it means if Donald Trump wins the election. And, uh, you know, it is... Um, it would really be a very, very different 
second term from his first term, and that is that you won't have people in the White House this time around like Fiona Hill, um, who was, you know, an expert on Russia and the former Soviet Union um, and a wise and constant and consistent voice on policy, on foreign policy, particularly in that part of the world. Grown-ups like Fiona Hill will not be joining the administration. There will be people who are ready-made to join a turbocharged MAGA-driven administration. They're waiting in the wings. They're preparing, and Demita's absolutely right. They will be the architects of a completely new global and European security order. Do we know what that might look like, Charles? I mean, we had a little bit of a taste in the, in the in Trump administration one goodness me, I've just thought of Trump administration too, when, you know, when they, when they sort of scraped everything out and, and, and chucked it overboard. The people who will return Donald Trump to power will do that at the ballot box because they will assume that he will withdraw within the U.S.'s borders um, and that this will once again become Fortress America. And we will talk about building walls again. Um, there's even talk about the United States pulling out of NATO. Um, and if there could be a more cataclysmic change to global security architecture, I would, you know, I'd be hard pressed to think of what that would be. Um, and so, um, you know, his relationship with Europe, his relationship with the UK, his relationship with all the people that we assume to be allies um, are up for grabs. And when you think about that, um Demetra, and you sort of look at the way that the Ukraine war is is being supported to such a degree by the United States. And it, it has been said many times before that Ukraine will win because of what is decided in Washington. Yeah. Honestly, it, it scares me um, because, uh, look, Donald Trump, and I, I don't like to say this, but Donald Trump is not wrong when he says that Europe needs to start pulling its weight. We have in Europe, I feel we've been quite um, naive when it comes to, you know, our own ability to defend ourselves militarily. Um, I feel like, you know, we've had peace for such a long time now that we've forgotten that you need to be prepared. And just, you know, Europe itself being a, having having agreed to be peaceful and, and play nice is not enough. Um, and, and we've seen you know, the, the neighbors that we have in our, in our vicinity. And we've seen that not everyone in this world has peaceful um, intent. And, and I think that we've seen that we need to be ready for that. However, we're not the only, the only I mean, we had uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor um, in Germany with his big uh, speech on the Zeitenwende. And I think uh, Germany has in the last year increased its military spending by, I don't know, zero point something percent points. The only the only country that's really made any progress since the beginning of the Ukraine war has been Poland in that. And so the reality is that Europe needs the U.S. And the other reality, I think, is that, you know, Vladimir Putin um, is is not likely to. So the only thing that's making him stop in Ukraine is is NATO and his military power and is and is these these types of you know military calculations. He's not. He, his vision is to reinstate the Soviet Union, and that means Transnistria, which is a part of Moldova, and that, you know, that might mean the Baltics, and that and Poland, I think, understands very well um, the position that it's in. And so the thought of, uh, like Charles said, the thought of a, a world where the U.S. is no longer in NATO and it really, really scares me. It does make it more of much more of a European war, though, doesn't it, when you, when you look at it from that perspective, Charles? Because, you know, when we see the likes of Finland joining NATO and then Sweden is hopefully knocking on the doors, um, and you... You have this feeling that 
Um, globally, apart from the major issue of food supply and how Russia's playing that, this is still being seen as a war that doesn't affect lots of people, but it, it's perhaps not the right view. Well, that's very much the Republican rhetoric when it comes to the conflict and when it comes to the war in Ukraine, and that is that, that this is Europe's war and that we have nothing to do with it. And, and as if it were the case that whatever the outcome, it would have no impact on the United States, which I think is an extremely mistaken and isolationist view of the world. Um, but, um, you know, Demita's also right in that is that Europe, in, to a certain degree, has to sort of um, assume a, a stronger leadership role in its own defense and in its own foreign policy. Um, and, and I think that European leaders are actively preparing for a Trump presidency. Um, there was a great sigh of relief when he lost the election um, in 2020 to Joe Biden. But I think that, that 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 sigh of relief has now turned to a sort of collective gasp in the event that he wins. And I think that Europe is preparing for that. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right to say that the United States view is, or the Republican view, I should say, is that, that even if Putin were to win the war in Ukraine, this has no meaning for us. And, and this is an, an enormously mistaken assumption. And just going back to sort of the, the point of view from America, um, Charles, when we're talking about, you know, the way that the rest of the world is seen by America. Um, what about the prospect from within America of thinking that actually we're going to go into a more isolationist view again and we're going to go back to Trump and we're going to sort of backpedal phenomenally compared with what's happening with Joe Biden? I mean, if you are trying to run your family, <laughs> I mean, how does yeah. that work? Right. So, um, look, I think that the couple things. Um, if Trump is reelected, we will see an isolationist United States. Um, if Biden is reelected, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is smooth sailing because what we have standing in front of us in a second Biden administration is ongoing tensions with China and the impact that that has also on global security and more importantly on global economics. And so when you think about what it's like to sort of run a family um, you know, in the next presidency, whoever it is, um, the United States is still in the grips of a cost of living crisis. Um, energy prices in the United States are for the moment tame, but threatening to rise again. Um, the Biden administration is doing everything it can to plan an economic recovery to coincide with the morning of the election next year. Um, that may or may not happen. It looks like it might, but it's an extremely fragile path to that recovery. And so, you know, if you're living in the United States, it kind of, as you said just a moment ago, it's going to be crazy town for a while. Um, and and it's the economic impact that's going to hurt the most. And of course, Demetri, if you're just looking at it from the other side of the Atlantic and you're looking at you know, the fact that internally the United States will have to recalibrate. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to do business with America or if you're trying to have some sort of communication or if you're trying to plan, um, this almost starts to put the brakes on now, despite the fact that we're still a good year and a bit um, off any presidential election. Yeah, I think I think what you said about being able to plan, you know, both in terms of business but also politically, I think that's pr probably the biggest difference between... Donald Trump and any other Republican president is this complete unpredictability because, you know, a lot of Donald Trump's positions are 
coincide or, or sort of overlap with the positions of, of, of most Republicans and the Republican base. But I feel like the the biggest factor that makes a, a second Trump term so scary is sort of this unpredictability and this he doesn't seem to be bound and his administration doesn't seem to be bound to any of what we think of as, you know, traditional political rules and how it's done. And, and, and that makes, you know, both business and, and, um, and obviously politics and, and sort of foreign policy a lot harder. Demet is absolutely right. In fact, um, Trump is there or is at least positioning himself for a second term in office as somebody who's there to smash up the existing political order and 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 to restructure um, American political institutions. And, and that forsages a period of extreme instability um, while that happens, if it happens. Um, and, and so, yeah, I agree completely with, with what Demita's just said. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, and joining me in London is Charles Hecker and in Zurich, in our studio at Dufourstrasse 90, is Demita Pressel. Uh, let's cross now, though, for the latest from Bangkok. I'm delighted to say our correspondent Gwen Robinson joins us on the line. Very good afternoon to you, Gwen. We have a little bit of a delay on the line, but we will do what we can to make this, uh, to sort of sort of navigate our way through it. Um, we've just been talking about potential uh, political turmoil in the, in the United States. Uh, does Thailand have, have anything to offer on potential political turmoil? Well, I think sort of Thailand is kind of ahead of the pack in terms of, if not turmoil at this point, I'd say political uncertainty and complete actually bewilderment. I mean, it's just been um, extraordinary, one of those you couldn't make it up uh, years in Thai politics, and it just gets worse and worse. So I think the turmoil is yet to come, but uh, we can discuss uh, what possible uh, options there may be. Well, just let's recap why we've got to the stage. What is the political situation at the moment? We had an election a few weeks ago, no, well, a couple of months ago now, I should say, and then it's taken um, a, a good long time for them to try to sort of form a government, but it's not working. So so just bring us back up to date, could you, Gwen? Yeah, I was afraid you'd ask that. Sorry. Um, but to try and really condense it, yes, there were national elections in May. Um, as most listeners probably know, that... There was an extraordinary surge of, uh, of sentiment for the young progressive Move Forward Party uh, and uh, its charismatic leader, Peter uh, Lim Jorunjat. And uh, they won uh, against all odds, and uh, people had not predicted that, and beat uh, also the, the main traditional opposition party, uh, used to be known as the Reds, uh, Poor Thai. Um, and uh, it looked uh, it looked amazing and wonderful, and people were on the streets dancing. And then suddenly it all went wrong. There were obstacles after obstacle, but particularly concerning um, the issue of a small shareholding that Peter, the uh, the move forward leader, had inherited as a result of his father's death uh, of a defunct media company. And uh, this seems to have become a huge issue that the uh, forces that are against uh, move forward have jumped on, and there are many reasons that conservatives in the political establishment and, in fact, in business are against move forward because they represent a threat to a lot of the uh, traditional way of doing things in Thailand. But most of all, move forward represents a, a big push to reform this um, extreme system of uh, less majesty and criminalising any 
anything deemed to be an insult to the monarchy. So Move Forward had campaigned on that. A lot of people, not just young people, but it seems a lot of middle class and ordinary people had decided enough is enough. So they had voted for that. And now Peter's uh, candidacy and legitimacy to be Prime Minister was thrown into question uh, in the vote uh, of a combined Houses of Parliament uh, a while ago. He was uh, defeated uh, initially by some of those conservative forces because they require a supermajority. Uh, it's a very complicated system. But uh, then this issue came up of his eligibility and that was brought up uh, after the second round where his name was put forward to the combined Houses of Parliament again. But this charge now is being investigated and that has stymied uh, procedures to vote for a prime minister, which is a procedure done by parliament after this national election. So there's other complications going on and a, a, an extraordinary merry-go-round of coalition politics where um, different parties are, are getting together, disbanding, um, you know, betraying each other, um, swapping sides. We've seen all of that happening. And basically what we've got now is Puatai, which came in second, the uh, main opposition uh, of, uh, founded by former Prime Minister Thaksin, uh, who's now in exile, is, uh, looks like it's taken the lead and is putting together a coalition. But they have now dumped Move Forward. They had made a partnership with Move Forward and it looked unbeatable that these two big opposition parties were getting together. It looks like they could not get the numbers to win over Conservatives and they need that for the vote in Parliament. And in fact, uh, Pertai has, uh, has um, made the big decision to dump Move Forward and it looks like they may be doing a deal with Conservative parties, in which case we're going to see another whole ball game. There will be some very angry voters out there who thought they were voting for a progressive coalition. So um, that is all pending now. Certain key dates, and the next one is August the 16th, where the Constitutional Court is to rule on the eligibility of Peter to again try to be uh, nominated in Parliament as the Prime Ministerial candidate. That is almost certain to fail, and we'll see Puatai kind of coming out with some kind of coalition. We don't know what sort yet, but it is most likely in bed with some of the arch-conservative parties, including the former, um, possibly in the former ruling party uh, backed by the military. So while the politicians... <laughs> that, thank you, you for that. You asked that question. Yes, and, and I got the answer. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Glenn. But while the politicians are sloshing around in all that, what does the average tie make of all this? Well, this is a really interesting question. At the moment, there have been street protests, but really amongst the hardcore Move Forward Party supporters. But there is a, a very uneasy sense that it's all in a hiatus right now. Everyone is watching to see what happens next with probably the disqualification of Peter's eligibility. Uh, there is a possibility as well that he may be banned from politics altogether in which case there is likely to be rage and fury amongst possibly a lot of younger progressive voters. And then uh, uh, other things that could happen is that you could see Purtai, the opposition party that actually was at one point against the establishment, make, uh, get into bed with, as I mentioned, these ruling conservative parties, including uh, some 
headed by the former Deputy Prime Minister, Prawit Wongsawan, who actually is still Deputy Prime Minister in the caretaker government, but is a, a military, uh, former military general with a, a big reputation for doing deals and uh, not much progress or reform there. So in that case, some analysts are predicting you could see actually a real rage of protest take hold if it is absolutely the most cynical outcome um, there are a lot of voters here who I think would be extremely angry. So, you know, some people are predicting it could it could become like very violent, angry uh, protests or riots um, that is in the extreme. Uh, else, we're going to see a lot of disaffected voters and possibly continuing street protests, which at this point are as I'd say, sort of sporadic and containable. It's it's an interesting situation that Thailand finds itself in the moment because that that chaos notwithstanding, it is enduring an amazing moment uh, when it comes to tourism and soft power that suddenly Thailand is absolutely back. It, it had such a struggle over the last few years. Um, but there's this parallel parallel narrative, isn't there? You were talking about you know, the, the mess in politics. Tourism's a different story. Well, you're quite right, and that is spot on, but it, it sort of reinforces this notion. And if you live in Thailand for any length of time, which I have, you one tends to fall into this um, belief that, you know, that, that the politics doesn't really matter, that Thailand just carries on. Uh, this time, the politics do matter, but if you go out and about and see the streets absolutely thronged with tourists and, you know, everybody having a good time and nobody really you know, giving a fig about uh, about the, what's going on in this country, there is a sort of surreal feeling. Uh, added to that is I think tourism has been hugely boosted recently by Thailand's normalisation of relations with Saudi Arabia. So we've, we've seen the introduction of multiple direct flights between Jeddah and Riyadh to not just Bangkok, but they're commencing to Phuket now. So apart from a lot of Russians who came after the for obvious reasons... Um, you know, we've got a lot of Saudis and other Arab tourists. Uh, the only thing missing is Chinese in significant numbers, but that, I think, is a pattern seen throughout the region. Um, but I was in in Japan uh, last month, and uh, as I'm sure uh, Tyler Brule would, uh, would attest, uh, Japan is undergoing an absolute, you know, swamp of tourists uh, who have flooded in. So I think there's an element of revenge travel but definitely it seems Thailand is one of the top destinations uh, this year. I mean, a combination of Russians and, and Saudis at the beach club, but that might make quite, <laughs> that might make quite an interesting scene. I can tell you, wild times ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Monocle's Bangkok correspondent, Ken Robinson, thank you so much for all that. The time here in London is uh, 9.42am. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Uh, I'll be hearing in a moment again from my guests, Charles Hecker and Demita Pressel. Keen for a quick tutorial on where you should take your business over the coming months? The really brilliant products are brilliant, not because of a marketing campaign or it's because they've managed to get some incredible ambassador. They really are good because they add value. Curious about the future of air travel? My aspiration is to make the fastest flight, also the most affordable, and ultimately get to a place where you can get anywhere in the world in four hours for a hundred bucks. Or wondering whether shops will still matter. There's thousands of different journeys through the store that anyone who walks in could take. From CEOs to editors-in-chief, CMOs to chief strategy officers, our series is a fast-paced intimate discussion with chiefs, big and small, from around the world, right here or wherever you find finer podcasts.
Welcome back to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, live from Midori House in London. Sitting next to me, Charles Hecker, uh, sitting in Dufourche 90, probably nursing an excellent coffee in Zurich, is Demita Pressel. And Demita, just just tell us, I mean, the, 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 the mood in the cafe this morning, it sort of builds up as we go along during the morning. And, there's, and, and, and you'll often find yourself sort of performing to a large audience in that studio, won't you? There's about 10 people. Um, and um, it's very relaxed, I would say, very, very Sunday morning vibes. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's so nicely decorated as well. It's such, an, such a beautiful open space and the lighting's gorgeous and it's, um, it's very cosy. It is. It's absolutely very cosy, despite the fact you're on a little bit of a stage. It's, it's quite a paradox, but it's absolutely lovely. Um, let's move on to something else that's been happening in the papers. Um, Charles, what have you picked up on? Well, in reviewing the papers upon my return from a holiday, I saw an awful lot of a recurring theme, and that is about the green energy transition. And and here in the UK, but not only in this country, we very much appear to be approaching some sort of crunch point, and that is that all of the talk of green energy transition has to now be converted into action. And it's turning out to be quite painful. And, and having just been at the beach, I'm reminded of these scenes that you see when little kids run into the water and then they see a big wave coming at them and they turn around and scream and run out. And, and I think that that's what's happening in part in the political class and also among consumers. And, and recent stories in the papers have talked about Rishi Sunak's almost 180 degree turnabout on energy policy and his release of, of dozens and dozens, I think it's more than 100 potential new licenses for drilling um, in the North Sea. Um, which in the face of a series of net zero commitments made by the government um, seems a bit strange. And, and what the prime minister has done and what the newspapers have been talking about is that this is good for the UK's energy security. And I find this a bit triggering because Rishi Sunak is, is pitching the energy industry as if, it is some, as if it is some sort of farm-to-table movement. And that is that the more that we drill here, the more that we get to keep here and use here. And this is good for us and this is good for the economy and it's good for energy security. And really, that isn't entirely the case. The UK exports the overwhelming majority of what it drills from the North Sea. It sells them on international energy markets at international prices. And we here in the UK see very, very little of it. This is a, a, a major problem for everybody, though, isn't it, Demita? Because what we what Charles seems to have been describing there is the perennial issue of political short-termism. Um, struggling in the polls here in the UK, Rishi Sunak has decided to go for the car owner and say, we love cars. Um, and you know the, the fact that the challenges of converting things to a more green economy and green infrastructure are things that no, it is a nettle that no economy really wants to grasp. I mean, we're seeing Joe Biden do it, but at such a huge, huge level. And you almost need to be a country as big as America to restructure yourself at that rate, don't you? I mean... The, this uh, this dichotomy between you know what is politically feasible and popular and what it what what would be necessary to actually um, stick to climate goals is something that's you know become more and more visible in the last uh, few years. I'm just thinking of this huge uh, speed limit d- debate that we've been having in Germany has been having it, Austria has been having it, and um, you know everyone sort of on a on a very abstract level is aware that we're in the middle of a climate crisis and that something needs to be done. 
but then when crunch time rolls around, nobody wants to um, slow down on highways um, by 30 kilometers an hour, and nobody wants to. Um, and that's a that's a very unpopular political proposition that no political party really has the courage to actually push through, because um, because they know it's not going to make them it's not going to win them any votes. So so this is I feel like this is an issue. You Anytime have, you talk about climate politics, absolutely, and you also have to bring in the the, the Ukrainian um, invasion by Russia last year. That everybody at that point said, right, this is the moment when we wean ourselves off um, fossil fuels because politically it is it is not right to to still depend so heavily on Russia. But you you mentioned there um, Austria. Now Austria has a big problem here, doesn't it? Because by all accounts, it's buying almost as much natural gas from Russia as it was be, as before the war in Ukraine. It does, yeah, more so, more so than other countries. But I mean, Austria in general hasn't been the most proactive in weaning itself off of Russian influence. This goes for energy. This goes for banking, where you know Raiffeisen Bank, a massive, like a very big bank in Austria, still has um, pretty much any ties to Russia that the sanctions will allow. So um, we're, we're not exactly model students when it comes to reducing Russia's influence and, and reach into our country. Um, but again, something that baffles me is that it feels like we've been talking about this for 20 years. So it feels like for 20 years, um, you know, European, there's there's been this European discourse about we're too dependent on Russia and we're too dependent on Russia, Russian energy. And there was a brief moment where you know, in the late uh, 2000s, early 2010s, it felt like maybe Russia was going to be a reliable partner after all, and maybe it wasn't going to be such a big deal. But I feel like this the issue has been around for 20 years, and it, it sort of baffles me a little bit that we're, that we're still at this point of what are we going to do to reduce dependence on Russia? I mean, the difficulty is being, being landlocked. It's heavily reliant on, on help from the neighbours. But you, you were nodding vigorously there, Charles, about the difficulty that, that countries like Austria and indeed Hungary face in terms of weaning themselves off Moscow's fuel. I, I was nodding vigorously, and, and, and that's because what Demita was saying was resonating so loudly in, in, inside my head, and, and, and that is that we did give it a shot. And I, and I think, again, perhaps this is easy to say in retrospect, but we did make a series of assumptions about Russia would, about what Russia would be like as an energy partner and as a business partner, and those assumptions turned out to be wrong. Um, and, and frankly, that was an assumption that Angela Merkel based her chancellorship on. Um, and, and a lot of her legacy has now come under enormous pressure as a result of the assumptions that she made about, you know, Wandel uh, der Handel, um, change through business. And um, it didn't happen. Uh, so we now have to reorient ourselves away from Russia um, economically and, and, and politically um, in, in, in sort of emergency fashion. And that isn't very easy to do. And I think that Demita's right in pointing out that in Austria specifically, there is also really not the, the, the sort of concrete political will to make that happen. That in incredibly difficult balance, isn't there, Demita, of not being part of NATO, being neutral in terms of the Russia um, invasion of Ukraine, but at the same time being part of the European Union? It, it's as difficult as you make it, I would say. I think that some parties in Austria have rightly understood that we have an outdated perception of neutrality. Um, this this concept of neutrality is extremely popular among the Austrian um, population, and I don't think that there's a, you know, I, I don't think there's a there's a push or a will to join NATO or anything like that or give up the military neutrality. But that doesn't mean we can't have a position 
on on the war in Ukraine. That doesn't mean we can't have a position when a country invades its neighbor and, and, and you know, starts acting in, in, in a genocidal fashion. So um, it, it, it shouldn't be a hard balance to strike. It should actually be pretty obvious. You know, being militarily neutral doesn't mean being morally neutral or economically neutral. And um It shouldn't. It shouldn't be difficult. <laughs> Somehow, though, Charles, it is. And 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 one of your hats that you wear. You're, at the moment, you're taking a sabbatical, writing a book about Russia. Is that right? That's but, right. But at the same time, and and and, and economics and business. But you're also um, sort of a leading voice at Control Risks, which looks at risks which are you know future risks in this that and the other. And if you are looking at Austria now, how? How favourable a place does it seem to do business, or will there be people from who who see you know Russia more as a friend, thinking actually, well, if 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 I need to go somewhere in Europe, I'm going to ring Vienna. So, in the balance of things that you're going to look at um, in a market, whether to expand an existing business or for potential new business, um, I think that when you look at Austria, you're going to think probably more of its relationship as a member of the European Union and the opportunities that that presents and, and, and perhaps a little bit less about its foreign policy and external relations with Russia. The one thing that you do want to think about, though, um, and I say this in, fully in the knowledge that there's an Austria expert on the other end of the line here, but um, when the energy crunch comes and if Austrian consumers and businesses Are, will have to make some sort of transition away from Russia. You'll remember some of the predictions that we had at the beginning of this winter about, you know, will we have enough? Um, it looks like there's enough energy to get us through the coming winter. If it is a tough winter, um, Austrians and Europeans across the continent will have to make a lot of very difficult decisions. Uh, let's move on. Finally, we've got a few minutes left. And uh, I know, Charles, you wanted to talk to us about food. On a lighter subject. Mm. If you're feeling a bit reflective and, and, and wistful on a, on a Sunday and if you're feeling a little bit hungry, <laughs> um, I managed over the course of a really interesting recent dinner uh, in a restaurant with some friends to have a 30-minute conversation about macaroni and cheese. Uh, and, and it turns out that this is quite an emotive topic because everybody likes macaroni and cheese. Everybody likes it a certain way and everybody has a very sort of possessive manner of preparing it. Uh, and, and, and so... Um, I will con I will confess that I'm the kind of person who boils the macaroni before putting it into the casserole just, dish. Just outline for us what the what the sort of like the, the the nub of the problem is for mac and cheese. Right. This is something that I was not aware of, not being a regular mac and cheese maker. So the the well, so this all emerged from the fact that I was trying to pre prepare an extremely American buffet uh, for a sort of party adjacent to the Fourth of July, uh, and mac and cheese was one of the focal points of the of, of of the buffet. And you know, this is a quintessentially American dish of of macaroni in, in various types of cheese sauces served in a casserole dish. Um, you have... We're being really generic here, Charles. Dig in for me. Di right. di drill down for us with the absolute issues. Okay, either, either you're, you're going in for some really sort of spicy, oily, greasy, kind of melty, clingy cheese, or you're going for something that's sort of very delicate and creamy and sort of like a roux. Um, and <laughs> there, are so, there are people who, who don't boil the pasta before they put it in the oven. There are people who boil the pasta before they put it in the oven. This depends on how much time you've got in the, in the kitchen uh, and how stressed out you are as a cook. Um, and and it, it's the kind of thing that, that divides people in half. 
Uh, Demeter, um, in the Pressel household, how big is a mac and cheese uh, an issue? Um, We have major arguments about how you should make tea, which has exactly the same sort of structure um, as Charles's problem with his pasta. Um, But but, what are your thoughts on this one? Which side of the the boil first, don't boil first, ruey gooey thing or or slightly more (laughs) delicate? Where are we heading when we come around to the Pressels for lunch? I just want to say I um, I spent four years in the UK at uni and, and I feel like having arguments um, around tea is a very British a very British argument to have. And I remember, in fact, my um, my colleagues and friends all having very staunch opinions on how tea should be made. But I, I regret to inform you that I have never in my life made mac and cheese. However, I have made pasta casseroles and I usually boil the pasta al dente first and then Ooh. leave it to sort of steam a little bit you, longer. You get a bit mushy. There's a risk of collapse and mush on that one. But um, it seems that tea seems to be a major thing that we're not going for. So the issues that we have in the one minute that we have left on Monocle on Sunday is how do you make a cup of tea? Um, Demita, how do you make a cup of tea? Uh, I, I put the tea bag in the in the mug and yep. I pour water over it and then I let it steep for about three to five minutes, usually yeah, three to five minutes for, for black and then I add just a dash of milk and a sweetener. Do you mash the bag? Uh, no, no. Okay. How about you, Charles Hecker? As an American, do you drink tea? I do drink tea. The The water must have immediately finished boiling. Um, you pour it over the tea bag. You dunk vigorously up and down with You're the tea bag. Yes, you squeeze it around the spoon. Um, and then beware of people who put the milk in first is all I can say. I agree. I th- I th- well, hang on a minute. I think we're just about to part company profoundly here, Charles Hackett, because I'm from Manchester, so I'm genetically programmed to make excellent tea. And I can tell you, you are both wrong. <laughs> the way you make properties, you get a pot for starters. None of this mug nonsense. Oh. And it's three bags in a medium-sized pot, freshly boiled water, absolutely on the nose there, Charles. But it's milk first. And it's all to do with science. It's all to do with emulsions and suspensions. That's what my mum used to tell me when she was shouting at me for going to the fridge and just sploshing a bit of milk into into a cup. Does this ring bells with uh, with with you, Demeter, in terms of the conversations that you had in the UK? Honestly, I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone put the milk in first, but I don't know anyone from Manchester specifically. <laughs> <laughs> I was once at a job interview with somebody who put the milk in first and I wanted to say something, but I was afraid that I wouldn't get the job, so I let it go. But you can tell how strong the tea is then, if you put the milk in first. And it can... But once you put it in, it's too late. There's nothing you can do about it. you just add it. more tea. Well, it depends on how big your mug is. Okay. We can go to a pot. <laughs> we can go. It's but I sense fine. a kindred spirit in Demita because she's boiling her pasta before she makes the casseroles, and I'm very grateful for that. Why, do you, why is that so important? We've got about 15 seconds to explain the importance of pre-boiling your pasta. You know, there's a there's a huge risk that it comes out hard if you don't boil it in advance, and that is that it won't suck up soak up enough moisture, and that you get a brick out of the oven rather than something nice and cheesy and squeezy. Charles Hecker and Demita Pressel dealing with the world's biggest issues. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday, and thanks also to my uh, editorial director guest Tyler Brule and our Bangkok correspondent Gwen Robinson. That's all we have time for today's program. Thanks to the producer Desiree Bandley and our studio manager here in London, Tamsin Howard, and Desi was behind the buttons in Zurich as well. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week, but for now, goodbye. Have a great Sunday. <laughs> <laughs>